Hello and welcome. This is Smart Prosperity, the podcast, your chance to catch up on all the buzz in the green economy. We've got a new show every two weeks that covers the politics, the business, the technology, the current affairs, and the ideas at the intersection of the environment and the economy. I'm your host, Eric Campbell. On today's show, are we letting provinces off the hook when it comes to climate action? Sean McCarthy is here to hold them to account. Then, trouble in BC's old growth forests. Gary Merkel is a career forester. He's also a First Nations leader, and he breaks down the issue facing BC's forests right now. After that, we'll hear a 60-second summary of a new report, and Mike Moffat caps it all off with his list of five things happening in the green economy this week. That's today's agenda. Let's get started. Okay, here's the constitutional issue Canadians aren't talking about right now. And that's that Canada's federal government has responsibility over setting international climate targets, like through the Paris Agreement. But it's Canada's provincial governments that own most of the constitutional jurisdiction over the things that pollute greenhouse gas emissions, and therefore most of the tools for achieving the climate targets that the federal government sets. So while the Trudeau government attracts a lot of attention over its action on climate change, is that attention perhaps misplaced by Canadians? Should we instead be asking more of our provinces? My next guest thinks so, and he's gone so far as to write a report card on the climate progress being made by Canada's provinces. I'm welcoming Sean McCarthy. Sean is a freelance writer and journalist. He's the former national business correspondent for The Globe and Mail. Lately, he's been writing for a variety of outlets, including Corporate Nights magazine. And I should also mention he's on the editorial board for this podcast. Sean, thanks for joining the show. Thanks very much for having me, Eric. So, Sean, as I mentioned in the intro, Canada's provincial governments have key jurisdictions when it comes to achieving Canada's climate targets. What are the things that provinces control that matter most for Canada's climate efforts, in your opinion? Some of the key responsibilities, frankly, uh, we we tend to think of the federal government leading the charge, but the, the provinces, the power sector, the electricity sector, they regulate it. In many cases, they own it. They regulate all sorts of uh, other areas uh, of, of energy use and building standards and, and then have a tremendous responsibility for regulation around uh, consumer items. So really, in, in some ways, they should be leading the charge because so much of what needs to change is in their, is in their domain. But, but to be clear, it has to be a partnership, and it, and, and it should be a partnership. The federal government does have some clear responsibilities, and we saw in the Supreme Court decision on, on carbon pricing uh, that came out this spring – even on carbon pricing, the, the provinces have paramountcy unless they're not doing their job. And then the federal government is allowed to come in as a backstop uh, to, to meet that peace order and good government clause uh, that, uh, that was relied on. Hmm. You know, the, the federal government uh, has set these targets under the Paris Agreement. What is, what's the role of the provinces in ensuring that Canada hits those targets? We are um, going to have a very hard time hitting targets if the provinces don't really step up and take their responsibility. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I don't think we've dealt very well yet 
with burden sharing. You know, how much should Alberta be doing versus how much Quebec or Ontario? You know, the fact that some provinces uh, are way more dependent on fossil fuels for their economy means it's much harder for them to hit certain targets. Three or four or five years ago, uh, Ontario and Quebec were aiming to do more than the uh, federal average. Uh, and Alberta and Saskatchewan had made it clear they felt they could only do much less than the average, but that was that was going to uh, somehow average out. We need to have a much better conversation around burden sharing and, and what each province needs to contribute to get us there. Hmm. Okay, well, you know, let's, I want to look at how some of the provinces are doing. Um, you uh, recently put together this report card um, that was published in Corporate Nights magazine, and, and some of them jump out at me. We, we won't go through every province, but maybe we can pull out uh, just a handful of them. Um, maybe we'll start with the, with the province that received the highest grade. Uh, There's only two A's given out, and one of them was to Nova Scotia. What's Nova Scotia doing right? A couple of things that they're doing right. Um, they, they adopted, they have their own carbon price, uh, which was uh, done in an agreement with the federal government. Um, they were very aggressive on energy efficiency. Um, they have a lot of have, have had and have relied on a lot of coal-fired power and are drawing that down very quickly. The previous Liberal government in Nova Scotia had an agreement with the federal government to phase out coal a little more slowly than the federal government would have liked. The new government, the new premier who came in, Ian Rankin, has said that no, they're going to meet the federal uh, goal of phase out by 2030 and and will um, increase their reliance on renewables and on um, hydropower. But they've just taken a lot of things seriously. And and as I say, the incoming government is is even more aggressive. I mean, they're looking at 50% reduction in emissions by uh, 2030 sometime. Okay, let's jump to to the other A grade that was received, an A minus for uh, Quebec, um, a bigger province with a bigger economy. What's Quebec doing right? Well, and Quebec has the great advantage, obviously, of having enormous amount of hydroelectric power at its disposal. Um, but two things I think that you know are related to that: cap and trade with California, uh, and that's that's moving along and the caps on on their industries uh, for emissions is, is going to ratchet down. Um, very aggressive on electrification of uh, transportation and the leaders in Canada on EV sales. Um, and, and that's in Quebec, uh, transportation is a big proportion of their um, emissions. But largely, I think it's, it's the result of of a all-in society-wide consensus that this is a this is an area that needs to be attacked. Okay, well, you talked about kind of Quebec being a province where there's a lot of popular support for ambitious climate action. Another province that falls into that category maybe is British Columbia, but. Right. Right. BC, you, you've given a B plus, but you've also noted that their emissions have been going up lately. Um, so what's what's the reason behind BC's grade of, of B plus in your report card? Two two factors. One was that provincial government was an early adopter of the carbon tax, and that that has restrained that increase uh, despite strong economic growth. They've had some of the best 
economic growth over the last 10 years of any of the provinces, but also that the NDP government, uh, first in, in a partnership with the Greens and, and now on its own, has an, announced way more ambitious policies and targets. The challenge for BC, one of the big challenges, is the expected expansion of liquefied natural gas exports uh, and and the natural gas uh, extraction business in northeast BC, which is a lot of methane uh, leakage in addition to CO2. It's a big emitting industry. The, the LNG plant that was approved um, is one of the biggest industrial emitters in, in Canada. So BC has its challenges, but they have put in place um, targets and measures that should move more quickly uh, in, in the next few years. Okay. Let's jump over to Alberta and Saskatchewan and maybe look at them as a bit of a pair right now. They've both got D's on your report card. And I'm sure that probably reflects some similar challenges given uh, the resource sectors in those both provinces. It does. Um, but I think it's important to note that the fact of the resource sector, the fact that they're dependent on, on resources, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get a D. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a lagger. Um, the the uh, government of uh, Rachel Notley came in um, and made some big steps in terms of um, phasing out coal, uh, putting in uh, a provincial carbon price and, and, and allocating a lot of that revenue to energy efficiency measures in the province, putting a cap on emissions from the oil sands. So they, they had a more activist approach that would have garnered a, a much higher mark, I think. Um, the, the government of uh, the UCP government in Alberta and the Saskatchewan party um, really have resisted politically most of the near-term measures that would be required to really turn the corner on emissions. The last province that, uh, that I'd love for you to comment on just now is Ontario. You've given Ontario a C-. minus. Tell me why that is. Some of it is, is uh, coasting on past success. The phasing out of coal in Ontario, which happened essentially between 2005 and 2010, really was a massive reduction in emissions from Ontario. We, Ontario was, when, when we were operating under a 2030 uh, 30% reduction target, Ontario could claim that it was roughly on track to meet that based largely on on the coal phase out mm. the new government having come in the the progressive conservative government has has um not only not taken much positive action but has actually unwound a, a lot of a lot of things that the previous liberal government put in place um energy conservation and efficiency measures um canceling renewable energy contracts, um, not showing much leadership on climate finance, an area we haven't really talked about. So um, those are the minus areas. A couple of things they, they are doing, they, they're making commitments on uh, small nuclear reactors. It could be one of those wild cards. I know a lot of the environmentalists don't like them, but uh, nuclear energy is, is non-carbon emitting and could, be, could play a role. Um, they have invested with, uh, with the federal government on, in the auto sector, uh, 
and, and trying to bring electric uh, vehicle manufacturing to Ontario. So again, they haven't, they haven't been completely rejectionist, but um, it's, it's just not a, not a big priority and not, not a particularly helpful attitude. Um, okay. Well, thanks for that, Sean. Really appreciate you uh, joining the show today. Thank uh, you, Eric. That was Sean McCarthy. For a link to Sean's Provincial Climate Action Report Card via Corporate Nights, go to podcast.smartprosperity.ca. That's the sound of protests which have been happening in various places in British Columbia this year and last year. The protests have been against the clearance of precious old-growth forests. Forestry is one of Canada's oldest economic sectors. Our proud history of chopping down trees led the famous economist Harold Innes in the 1930s to describe Canada's economy as simply being hewers of wood and drawers of water. But the protests in B.C. have forced the government and the industry to look more closely at the sustainability of forestry practices in the province and to once more search for the right balance between protecting Canada's nature and harnessing it for economic gain. And there is economic gain there. In B.C., forestry contributes $12.9 billion to the provincial economy every year and employs about 100,000 people. So where is the balance when it comes to forestry in B.C.? Here to share some insights is Gary Merkel. He's joining me by satellite phone from Katunaha First Nation in BC. Gary's a professional forester with over 45 years of experience in the field. And last year, he co-chaired the independent panel established by the BC government to find solutions for BC's old growth forests. Gary, thanks for joining the show. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Appreciate it. Gary, you've been a forester for 45 years. What can you tell us about the significance of this industry to British Columbia? BC was built on the backs of the forest industry. It, uh, it was the core industry that drove the development of the province. Uh, and then mining kind of kicked in um, as the province developed. So it's a core part of uh, our culture and the core part of, I guess, who we are as British Columbia, the forest sector. Um, it used to be the major contributor to the economy of the province. Um, its position has certainly dropped over time um, uh, because our harvests have gone down, the value of our timber or the value of the logs that we're taking out of the woods has gone down over time, and its proportion in terms of our overall economy now. Um, I don't know exactly the position, but I think there's a few sectors now that are ahead of it. But nonetheless, it's still very important, particularly in rural British Columbia, where in some communities it's still the mainstay. It is still the number number one economic driver in those communities. Now, Gary, you also hail from the Taltan First Nation. What's the dynamic like between First Nations and the forestry industry? With First Nations, the impact, the, the ability to sustain off of the land has been diminished uh, because of the impacts of forest harvesting, particularly the extensive use of uh, clear cut or that style of harvesting. 
But now lately, um, in terms of the economic aspects of the sector, BC government has implemented policies that promote the involvement of First Nations and the economic aspects of uh, the forest sector and, and holding tenure. And so we're seeing a lot more involvement in the economic side of the sector. And we're seeing way more involvement in the land stewardship and planning side of the sector. Basically, the way we're moving in provincial policy right now, we're, we're looking to establish joint stewardship uh, or management relationships across the province with First Nations in their, in their various homelands. And a lot of those are already in place. Uh, they're fairly young. Some are fairly mature and some are just developing. But over the next few years, we expect to see that happen right across the province. So becoming much more active in the forest sector as an economic and much more active in land management in general. Okay. Now, Gary, over the past year, and even just this past week, actually, there have been heated protests against the harvesting of old growth forests. These are forests and ecosystems that can be hundreds, even thousands of years old, and that have special value for for biodiversity, for climate change mitigation, water protection, um, and so on. What are the issues that are bubbling up here? Well, you know, it is true that we have hectares and hectares and hectares of what you would call old growth forests. But what is left out of that fact is that most of those older old growth forests are high elevation, low productivity forests. There is very few of the old, um, iconic, rich forests that you see uh, in the pictures, the uh, magazines. And the issue here now is these iconic ones and some of the real ancient ones, because now we're getting to that stage where we've taken most of the readily available old ancient ecosystems, uh, we have largely used clear-cut methods on those. And in some areas, we've slash burn the master, which takes the age of the ecosystem back in some case a few thousand years, knocks off the ecosystem. Um, those are those that are available for people to go and see and be around and get their spiritual or medicinal or commercial recreation or whatever other things, those are becoming much more limited and people are becoming much more aware of those. Hmm. Last year, Gary, you tabled a report to the BC government about how to better manage old growth forests. What solutions are you advocating for? This is both a societal shift and a management shift. And it's a very complex management shift that has to happen and the system needs to change. So solutions. Solutions are to shift the ecosystem-based management or, or healthy ecosystems management. Uh, and there's a lot of different methodologies out there for that. Start to manage for biodiversity risk. Uh, start to set some real hard targets. Change our practices. Uh, this is both a planning issue and a practice issue. Um, the predominant method of harvesting that we use in this uh, province right now is clear-cut or some variation of clear-cut because it's 
the most economical and frankly, in some areas, uh, the, the most safe way to do it. Um, but, but we need to move to uh, harvesting and silviculture systems that more closely mimic the way nature works. So we need harvesting systems that maintain the attributes of these old forests as much as possible and have a different kind of touch in them. And then maybe one last thing um, is, is uh, we believe that we need to change our rudder. Um, when I say rudder, I mean the way we make decisions about land. Right now, we rely on a four-year election cycle with political leaders who make public policy and who plan and approve land use in this province. And, you know, at a, at a collective level, of course, we need collective policy. But at a local level, um, we believe that if we can educate or that once we educate our communities and build informed local planning tables properly supported by the right scientific people that we will start to move to management styles for those areas and give them the prime objective of looking after ecosystem health that over time, probably within a few decades or a couple decades, we will start to see some very different management systems uh, materialize and they will be deeply grounded in that local area. So we're way less prone to be flipping all over the place. Gary, we'll have to stop there. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for connecting with us today. You're welcome, Eric. Thank you for having me. That was Gary Merkel. I reached him at his home office in Katunaha First Nation in British Columbia. To follow up on this issue and learn more about the issues facing BC's old growth forests right now, and for a link to the report that Gary co-authored for the BC government last year, go to this episode's webpage at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Now it's time for something we do every week. It's called the 60-second report. It's where we invite the author of a major new report to sum it all up in 60 seconds or less. This week, we're welcoming Stéphanie Jagou. Stéphanie is with Québec Circulaire and the lead author of a new report co-released with Smart Prosperity Institute called Transitioning to a Circular Economy, Learning from the Quebec Experience. Stéphanie, over to you. So this is a landmark report that really brings key lessons learned from the Quebec experience uh, from that span from 2014 to 2020. And the idea is to bring it to a broader audience across Canada uh, with real world guidance relevant to inform their respective role in shifting to a circular economy. So it is for policymakers, community leaders, educators, academics, communicator and concerned citizens interested in building a new economy and a resilient society with real-world guidance that will be relevant to them for their own shift to a circular economy. Merci Stéphanie for a link to that new report on the circular economy best practices in Quebec. Visit this episode's webpage at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. And last but not least, it's the final segment of every show. It's where I turn to my colleague, Mike Moffat, to recap all the things happening in the green economy that we didn't cover elsewhere on the show. Mike is the senior director here at Smart Prosperity Institute. 
Mike, over to you for the top five things we should know about this week. I'm Mike Moffat, and here are the five things that I'm watching this week. Number one, the International Energy Agency released a report that models a narrow pathway for reaching global net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. It identifies 400 steps, including for zero new investments in fossil fuel projects and stopping the sale of new internal combustion engine passenger cars by 2035. Number two, the federal government launched a Sustainable Finance Action Council to improve the flow of investment to support Canada's climate goals. The biggest challenge for the council will be to develop a system of mandatory disclosure of climate-related financial risks for companies in line with Canada's peers. Number three, just 100 companies are responsible for producing 90% of all the world's single-use plastic pollution, according to research published by the Mindaroo Foundation. The culprits include both state-owned and multinational corporations, from oil and gas giants to chemical companies. Number four, Britain launched its own carbon pricing system for industrial emitters last week after it had pulled out of the European Union system as part of Brexit. Participants are concerned that, without a link to the EU system, the British system will be less effective. And number five, Bitcoin shares took a plunge when Elon Musk announced that Tesla would no longer be accepting the cryptocurrency as payment. Musk pointed to Bitcoin's massive climate footprint, which is already equivalent to that of a medium-sized country, and rising. I'm Mike Moffat, and those are the five things that I'm watching this week. Thanks, Mike. For a second glance at those stories, Mike has them written out for you at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Now that's it for this episode of Smart Prosperity, the podcast. Thank you for tuning in. The views shared on this show are always evidence-based. That's the way we roll at Smart Prosperity Institute. But it doesn't mean to say that there aren't other views. If you've got a view of your own that can help in our understanding of the environment and the economy, email me or at me on Twitter. I want to hear it. All my contact info is at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. I'm Eric Campbell. I'm broadcasting from the lands traditionally stewarded by the Algonquin Anishinaabe peoples. Thanks for listening. The next episode is out June 9th. I hope you'll tune in then.